This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Wednesday, and we are back with more pulmonary questions. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing very well, buddy. Um, I have a question here. It's such a good question um, about corticosteroids. <laughs> I, I, I just be excited or terrified. No. Well, I think this is your kind of question. But um, knowing there are certain you wonder which medications should I think about on the test? Um, and obviously there's a pharmacology section, but in general, knowing the, the medications that we use most commonly in the NICU are, are the slam dunks. So the steroids, uh, the caffeine, um, and then we don't use them all that often, but anything like we talked about last yesterday that targets PPHN or the nitric oxide pathway um, definitely is for sure high yield. Okay, so I'm going to do pulmonary question 61. You are reviewing the benefits and risks of administering antenatal steroids to pregnant women with a group of medical students and residents. Which of the following statements about the administration of corticosteroids during pregnancy is true? A, changes caused by corticosteroid administration cannot be detected by prenatal ultrasonography. Interesting. B, corticosteroids cause an increase in fetal heart rate variability. C, corticosteroids cause increased movements in the fetus. D, corticosteroids only impact the fetal lungs. Or E, fetal blood flow in the umbilical arteries, the middle cerebral artery, and the ductus venosus are affected. Which of the following is true? Okay. Antenatal steroids, I feel like, is not something I'm so always super comfortable about. It does so many things in so many different ways. Yeah. It's like, ugh. But this, the question is asked in a way that's convenient. So they're asking what mm -hmm. is true. And the first statement, changes caused by corticosteroids administration cannot be detected by prenatal ultrasonography. Yeah. That's true. I've never heard of anybody saying, let's just check that the steroids have made their effect on the fetus before we proceed with uh, elective delivery or something. So yeah, that's that's definitely true. And um, so I'm going to, that's, yeah, that's so true that I'm not even going to bother going through the other answer choices. You'll, you'll just tell us. So I'm going to pick A. Yeah, A is correct. So administ administration of corticosteroids to a pregnant woman leads to a lot of things, um, mostly in regards to uh, pulmonary development. So knowing those factors are important. This is a different type of question. It also does briefly lead to a decrease in fetal breathing and fetal movements. It also shows um, less uh, fetal heart rate variability, um, but the fetal blood flow is not affected. However, despite all these kind of um, small fetal changes, uh, they are very transient. They typically return to baseline within seven days after corticosteroid administration. So I thought this was actually kind of a hard question because it does cause some of these changes, which theoretically you could look at on ultrasound, but they're 
super transient. Um, so likely not to be seen on, on ultrasound. However, these changes might result in a lower BPP score within that time period. So in the first week after administration of corticosteroids. Very interesting. Okay. All right. So we're going to go to question 64. A 400-gram male infant is born at 23 weeks of gestation after premature rupture uh, of membranes and, membranes and unstoppable preterm labor. The infant's mother has received beta-methasone two hours prior to delivery. The infant emerges limp with no movements. Initial heart rate is less than 60 beats per minute, so positive pressure ventilation is started. The baby is cyanotic and bradycardic despite increasing the FiO2 to 100%. The baby is urgently intubated with a 2.5 endotracheal tube on the second attempt. After intubation, uh, an umbilical venous catheter is placed and a dose of epinephrine is administered uh, via an IV. By six minutes of life, the infant's already improved to 120 beats per minute, and his uh, color starts to improve. He's given a 10 ml per kilo bolus of normal saline because of poor perfusion. Given his critical status, he's transferred to the NICU. Chest X-ray on admission is notable for a significant pneumomediastinum without Mm. evidence of a pneumothorax. What is the most likely cause of this infant's pneumomediastinum? Choice A, bronchopulmonary sequestration. Choice B, congenital lymphagiectasia. Lymphagiectasia. You got it. All right. All right. Congenital pulmonary airway malformation. D, migration of the umbilical catheter into the pericardial space. <laughs> Choice E, tracheal perforation during intubation. Welcome to the incubator's M&M. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh- <laughs> Um, well, you gave me a hint, frankly, but um, so basically they're saying, what's the most common reason that a brand new baby would have a pneumomediastinum, which is actually not something we see very commonly. And you have to think about like, what's in the mediastinum? Um, uh, I think these anatomical things are not the correct answer. Migration of the umbilical catheter to the pericardial space. I think first we'd see something in the around the pericardium rather than the mediastinum. So something that could definitely cause a pneumomediastinum is tracheal perforation during what is potentially to be a difficult uh, intubation. So I go with e. I mean, yes, yes and no, because it's like on the second attempt. So it's like, it's not bad. Yeah, no, it's not, yeah, no, sure, sure. Because um, I, I was thinking the same thing. There's just not a lot of space like, in there. That's true. But I don't want to give the impression. This is a tiny little, this is a tiny little person, you know? I don't want to give the impression that like second attempt. Oh, sure, sure. Scoff, scoff. But, no, I'm, uh, I, you know, I, I think that a 400 gram intubation is always potentially. Yeah. A high you risk are correct. You were correct, madame. The tracheal perforation during intubation is uh, the most likely cause of this infant's pneumomediastinum. The risk of tracheal perforation is higher in small preterm infants. Mm-hmm. Tracheal perforation can lead to a pneumomediastinum, especially if ventilation is provided through an endotracheal tube when is it uh, when it is inappropriately outside of the provided uh, mm-hmm. of, outside of the trachea. Um, and I think that's the key. 
when you're talking about pulmonary air leak syndrome, you just have to think about the fact that there's, there's a tear somewhere mm-hmm. and air is going to track. Air is going to try to go other places, mm-hmm. which is what happens with the pneumothorax where the alveolar membrane ruptures and then we have air tracking and it could go anywhere creating a, pneumo- a pneumothorax, creating pneumomediastinum. But that's this idea of air tracking around, even going to like subcutaneous uh, emphysema. Like mm-hmm. air could go anywhere it wants to go. Conservative management of tracheal perforation includes high frequency ventilation and serial radiographs to monitor progression. Um, I the 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 data that's okay. I'll come back to that. Uh, many perforation in small infants will heal without mm-hmm. any intervention, though some will require surgical management. Other choices in this question, congenital lymphangiectasia is a malformation of the lymphatic vessels of the chest, which can result in chylothoraces, but is unlikely to affect the airway. CPAM and bronchopulmonary sequestration are abnormalities of the airway that can result in air trapping, but would not involve the mediastinum. And the migration of the umbilical cord into the pericardial space could lead to a pericardial tamponade, but not really pneumomediastinum. The if you have questions about the the data used to support this answer, especially assuming people are going to say, well, uh, conservative management includes high frequency ventilation and serial radiographs. Well, the data that is quoted here is from two papers published in 2014, uh, one in the Journal of Neonatal Nursing and the other one in the International Journal of Pediatric Otorhinolaryngology. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So if you're interested in that, you can find them in the answer choices. All right, buddy. I think we have time for one more. Oh, you are muted, Daphna. But I'm sure this was a brilliant start. I said, you're really going to like this question. Okay. Okay, this is pulmonary question 65. Compliance (laughs) is a measure of the change in volume for a given change of pressure. Which of the following statements about lung compliance in the newborn is the most accurate? <laughs> there are so many questions they could ask about compliance. That some of these answer I love, choices I are, love compliance. are tough. Let's go. Okay. All right. A, a previously healthy infant with no lung disease is post-op following an inguinal hernia repair. The infant is noted to have hyper-expanded lung fields on chest radiograph. The infant's specific lung compliance is likely to be low compared to age-appropriate controls. B, in premature infants, the chest wall compliance can result in reduced lung compliance. C, static lung compliance is dependent on both the elastic properties of the lung and airway resistance. D, the dynamic compliance is independent of respiratory rate. Or E, the steeper the compliance line of the pressure volume loop, the lower the compliance of the lung. You're looking for the correct answer choice. All right. Um, Definitely, definitely choice B. In premature infants, the high chest wall compliance can reduce. Uh, the high chest wall compliance can result in reduced lung compliance. That's kind of a tricky thing to say, but basically, what it means is that the the chest wall has has no uh, is not a has no has no will self will. So it will just try to just try to collapse, mm-hmm. and because the chest wall is really trying to collapse, it makes the lung very difficult to inflate, which makes the lung having a low compliance. So my answer is B. Um, 
And then you're going to tell us about all the other choices because, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So compliance is a measure of the change in volume divided by the change in pressure. So, so for a given amount of pressure, how much volume do you get? It's so I, I usually give this example to people about lung compliance when you're inflating balloons for like your, your kid's sure. party. So like yeah. when you start inflating the balloon, you get a little bit of air in, the balloon slightly inflates and then gets stuck, yeah. right? Yeah. So compliance is here. This is the definition of compliance being very low. You, low. you provide right. a lot of pressure. You, you're trying to blow. So the balloon, hard. <laughs> but the balloon doesn't change. Well, it yeah. stays the same. Compliance is very low. But then at some point, you break the resistance of the balloon, whatever, and then you just add a little bit more pressure and the balloon yeah, just inflates. That's, right. that's when the change in compliance happens. The compliance is very high. That's the definition of compliance. How much volume are you seeing in terms of change compared to the amount of pressure you're putting in? Um, I think that's, that's an easy way of remembering that. Love it. Um, and then there are these two properties of compliance. So static lung compliance is measured when there is no flow of, of gas, and it just reflects the elastic properties of the lung. But contrary to this, dynamic compliance is measured during flow of gas and represents both the elastic properties of the lung and resistance to flow. So it's not independent of all these other things. Dynamic compliance is also impacted by the respiratory rate of the infant. Now, when they talk about the pressure volume loop, we can find these on the ventilator and it actually allows assessment of the compliance of the lung. It can also show you what is the compliance over time, say after you give surfactant. The compliance line is created by connecting the point of no flow at the end of inspiration and the point of no flow at the end of expiration. And so this creates a sloped line uh, with pressure on the x-axis and um, volume on the y-axis. The steeper the slope of the compliance line, the greater the compliance. So that means with a small amount of pressure change, I get a big amount of volume change. And, and that makes sense because if the line is steep, that means that you're on the y-axis, you have volume. So you're going to reach right. a high number on the y-axis, which means, hey, very, very uh, high compliance. If okay. the line is very flat, it means that you add a lot of pressure on the x-axis and yet your line is not really getting off the ground, which uh, would be a sign of poor uh, compliance. That's right. And then in particular for these preemie infants, the chest wall compliance is also high and it therefore provides less opposing forces to the elastic recoil of the lungs. This can lead to atelectasis and reduced functional residual capacity of the lungs, which in turn lowers the lung compliance totally separate from like lung disease. The compliance of the lung is related to the lung volume, and it is reduced at both extremes of either atelectatic lungs or over-distended lungs, which was the situation in this post-op baby, that there was hyperinflation on x-ray, which also lowers the lung compliance. The specific lung compliance can be calculated to compensate for this by dividing the lung compliance by the functional residual capacity. Therefore, the specific lung compliance should represent the intrinsic properties of the lung independent of the initial lung volume. You were right. I did like this question. I know. That's a good one. It's a good one to work through. All right, buddy. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.